You know, I just uh, concur with Eileen. There is something so precious about that. I'm pretty convinced that when kids celebrate and worship like that, our father looks down and goes, yeah, somebody gets it. (laughs) Somebody gets it. How wonderful is that? Well, welcome to kickoff Sunday. <laughs> what on earth are we kicking off? If, you, if you've not been through a kickoff Sunday at Applewood before, no worries. It, uh, it's not as physical as it may sound. It is a, uh, it's a recognition of a new school year and ministry year that God has, has blessed us with. And it's an opportunity to just do some special things together. Uh, if you've seen the schedule, we're just going to uh, stay here and gather and have a little fun together. Hope you will plan to stay. Well, there's a wonderful lunch uh, that will uh, that happen after we've had a little bit of fun and uh, learned some stuff together. Some of you have already gotten your packets. They are literally uh, stuffed with information. And uh, she's not here, and she wouldn't care if I said it, but make sure. Give a big hug to Mickey and a big thanks Nobody works harder to get this stuff together. In fact, nobody does this stuff but Mickey. And, uh, and it is done with excellence and uh, something that, that we can really be thankful for and, and proud of. And I'm just grateful to her for all of her work. So be sure that you give her a hug and a, and a big thanks for all of her work. And uh, she would consider it a huge thanks if you're planning to stay. Um, do stick around. We are going to have some fun together. And uh, you'll notice if you, some of you have already been looking through the material, and uh, there's a theme there. The theme is one of connecting, and that is a theme, if you uh, have never picked up on that, it is a theme that is near and dear to our hearts here at Applewood. We believe that there is power, and there is great witness, and there is amazing growth, potential for growth as followers of Christ when we connect our lives together. Uh, We are constantly battling against the American Christian syndrome, you know, that says I can do it on my own. That just isn't happening, folks. God calls us to do it together. And so we take opportunities like this uh, to uh, connect. And there are lots of other opportunities that you'll find in that material. And uh, the Broncos game starts at 11 o'clock today. You'll be home in time to catch the last part of that game. And here's the thing. The Broncos are going to be playing again next Sunday and the Sunday after that and probably the Sunday after that. There's probably a Monday night thrown in this somewhere. The point is, kickoff Sunday happens once. So aren't you glad you're here to celebrate, be a part of this? See the Broncos another week, okay? All right, kickoff quiz Sunday. Here we go. Quiz for you. Just uh, two or three questions. You're sitting in your house on a Saturday morning and you're enjoying a good cup of coffee, reading the paper, when the doorbell rings. You open the door to two women standing there. One looks to be in her mid-50s. The other looks like she's in her early to mid-20s. They're nicely dressed. One has a book in her hand and the other is carrying a a brown sort of a briefcase, sort of a book satchel. You're laughing. Who are these ladies? How do you know that? 
<laughs> Cheryl says, because they've been to my door. <laughs> they know my name. Okay. You recognize them. You, you, you recognize the, uh, the, uh, the MO. They, they have been there before. You've seen this happen. They, they always uh, pretty much look like that and take that approach. Okay. You did well on quiz question number one. Quiz question number two. It's a sunny fall afternoon, and you're out walking your dog when two young men riding bicycles come riding up alongside of you. They are wearing bike helmets. They have white shirts and ties on, and you notice they have name tags. One is Elder Bob, and the other is Elder Dan. Who are these young men? How do you know that? <laughs> They're consistent. They've been to Cheryl's house, too. Okay. Same approach. We recognize it. Okay. You did well on question number two. Here's your final quiz question on kickoff Sunday. Multiple choice answers. After identifying who these people are, you are A, excited and eager to talk with them. B, certain that God wants them to talk with someone else. C, you are now convinced that God no longer loves you because they have come to talk. D, you're wishing that you could suddenly disappear or make them disappear. E, you're trying to decide whether or not you should talk with them. How many of you are excited to talk with them? Zach. <laughs> Joe, thank you. There is no doubt, is there? No doubt that... that the majority of us, if not every time, at least a good percentage of the time, when we encounter a situation like this, there is that sense of anxiety, that sense of, oh no, what do I say? What if I don't have a good answer? What if I say something wrong? I mean, we know that this is important stuff. We know that the stakes are high. And doggone it, God is sovereign, and we know that it's no accident, although we'd like for it to be, that they come into our lives. I have an uncle who's a Jehovah's Witness. He has been a Jehovah's Witness since I was a little boy. I can remember he and my mom having lengthy conversations, most of them controlled and peaceful, some not. And I can remember my mom taking notes about the things that she didn't have answers to. And she would go study, and she'd be prepared for the next time they had an encounter and they talked about faith issues. But despite all of her efforts to have answers for those questions, those challenges, I have to tell you, that many of them just didn't matter. They really didn't. They just did not matter. Because ultimately, in situations like this, it all comes down to one thing. It always comes down to one thing. It did then, and it still does now. Only it's one thing that makes a huge difference the significance of this one thing is huge. And it's always the same, ultimately. 
when we or if we engage these folks. One major difference. Two words. Want to guess? Exactly. Exactly. Jesus Christ. That is what it comes down to. And if you've ever been in those kinds of discussions, you know that there are a lot of issues that bubble up. Issues that get thrown into the mix. Levels of heaven. And celebration of holidays. And observance of Old Testament laws and, and history and the origins of humanity. Just to name a few. Here's the deal. Friends, those topics are not the issue. They are not what is most important. The issue is always, always, always the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That is what it comes down to. That is what it always comes down to. And when we find ourselves engaged in a conversation with someone of a different faith, Jesus Christ is the single issue that we must always be working to bring the conversation back to. Some years ago, the publishing house of Grosset and Dunlap brought together a panel of 28 educators and historians and asked them to select the 100 most significant events of history, then list those events in order of importance. So after months of labor, the panel reported that they considered the most significant event in history to be the discovery of America. In second place was the invention of movable type by Gutenberg. Eleven different events tied for third place and five tied for fourth place. The events tying for fourth place were the writing of our constitution of our country, the development of ether, the development of the x-ray, the discovery of the airplane, and the life of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus tied for fourth. In the minds of God's people, dare I say, brothers and sisters, the life and the person of Jesus Christ must be of singular importance. He must be the highest priority, not tied with anyone or anything, period. I read the story of a pastor's experience this, this last week. Some reflections after seeing the movie The Passion. He said, returning home, my mind was, was filled with the images of that movie. He said, I sat down in a chair at my house and after thinking for a while, I noticed there was a pile of unopened mail from the day sitting on a table. I picked it up, began to go through it. The first letter was from a local church inviting me to visit their special community. And they listed the ways that they were unique. Here's what they listed. No religious dogma. We encourage the freedom of individual thought and belief. A humanist view of life. Our faith is based on celebrating the inherent worth and dignity of every person. Warm, accessible services. Our Sunday services typically include a mix of readings, music, moments of meditation or contemplation, and a sermon. Sounds familiar. Our children's religious education program. We teach our kids to be accepting of differing beliefs 
and the importance of each person seeking his or her own truth. They study the world's major religions and draw on the core values of each faith tradition. So, if you're looking for a congregation that cherishes freedom of belief and opinion with a warm sense of community and fellowship, please visit us. This pastor said, I had just watched the horrific suffering of Jesus and heard him say, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And now I was reading an invitation from a Christian group that was saying essentially, the truth doesn't matter. The contrast, he said, was just overwhelming. And if what the Apostle Paul writes to the Colossian Christians is any indication of how he felt, and I think it is, he would totally agree with that observation. And that is one of the reasons that I want us to study this amazing and powerful book. It's a good reminder to us of what is really the issue. It is a good reminder of what the Christian faith really boils down to. What is of singular importance and focus in our lives. It's also a great book to study before the Advent season. Yes, that does mean that we will study it until the Advent season. But we'll be okay. Another reason is that it's one of my favorite books in Scripture. And that's probably good enough reason to study it alone, don't you think? The pastor's favorite book. It's a treasure chest. Colossians is a treasure chest. It is so rich. And I hope that you will give serious attention to Colossians in these weeks to come. That you'll uh, possibly consider the challenge of reading through it once a week. Four short chapters. You can blaze through it. If you read it at least once a week, you will have read it at least ten times by the time we get to Advent. Four short chapters. You could read those during halftime of the Broncos game. You could skip the Broncos. No, no, we, we, won't, we won't go there. Just teasing, just teasing, Jill, just teasing. Okay, blasphemy. So by way of introduction this morning to this wonderful book, let's stand together and let's read what I think are the key verses in, uh, in all of, of Colossians. Again, my opinion, but uh, I think you'll hear them. They'll be familiar to many of them. And you will probably agree. Let's, uh, let's read these words together. We look at this sun and see the God who cannot be seen. We look at this sun and see God's original purpose in everything created. For everything, absolutely everything, above and below, visible and invisible, rank after rank after rank of angels, Everything got started in him and finds its purpose in him. He was there before any of it came into existence and holds it all together right up to this moment. And when it comes to the church, he organizes and holds it together like a head does a body. He was supreme in the beginning and leading the resurrection parade. He is supreme in the end. From beginning to end, he's there, towering far above everything, everyone. So spacious is he, so roomy, 
that everything of God finds its proper place in him without crowding. Not only that, but all the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe, people and things, animals and atoms get properly fixed and fit together in vibrant harmonies, all because of his death, his blood that poured down from the cross. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Now, as you're seated, find your neighbor and say to them, ask them this question based on what we just read together. On a scale of one to ten, with ten being the most important, where would Paul put Jesus? Go ahead. You're going to get this wrong, even though you think it's a simple question. All right, quickly, it doesn't take much thinking, does it? He's a 20. He's, yes. Jesus is off the scale. Say that with me. Jesus is off the scale. He really is. I mean, Paul uses language here that is amazing. It is, it is big in its scope. Theologically, it is weighty stuff. And we'll, we'll be plowing through some of it together. And, uh, and I think being blessed hugely as a result of our study. One might get the impression from these words that uh, Paul was just slightly over the edge about Jesus. What a shame. Yeah. <laughs> you see, there have been groups of people through the ages. We would refer to them these days often as, as pseudo-Christian cults. They've been around for a long time. Groups that reference the Bible, groups that speak of Jesus as important, groups that use terminology that is familiar to us, words like heaven and hell and salvation and sin and the cross and blood. And apart from referencing the Bible because it was not complete yet, there were groups that had sprouted up into the existence of the early church. First century, second, into the third and fourth, there were some some full-blown issues that the church faced. And they impacted the way that, that the church grew and the way that Christianity spread. And that's what's going on in this book of Colossians. That's what's going on in this letter to whom the believers, the Christians in Colossae lived. And part of what we'll do together in this study is, is to get a better understanding of the predominant beliefs of some of those cults of the day so that we can appreciate and embrace not only these lofty statements that Paul has just given us about Jesus, but, but he says them again and again, and he rephrases them, and, and he comes back to the greatness the awesomeness, the supremacy of Jesus over and over and over again. And the purpose, I think what's important for us to understand is, is we want to, we want to have a better understanding of what the Colossians were facing. We want to have a better understanding of what Paul was teaching them 
so that we can understand that in the, the, the correct beliefs will impact the way that we live our lives as God's people. It does. Belief impacts the way that we live. If I believe that getting run over by a car is harmful to my health, then I'm probably going to look both ways before I step out in the street. If I believe in the law of gravity, then I don't just go anywhere I want when I'm visiting the Grand Canyon. Belief impacts the way we live. And what we believe about Jesus should impact the way that we live our lives. And we don't live our lives in isolation. We live our lives in relationships with one another and, God willing, with many people who need to know Jesus, the one that we believe in. Are you good with this? That's where we're going to go. I hope you're good with it. I don't know what I'd do if you weren't. Probably just go there anyway. So, let me ask you about Colossae. Little town located in the country of what we would call modern Turkey. Tell me what you know about Colossae. Don't know anything about Colossae. Sitting there thinking, Alfredo, starts with a C. That's about as much as anybody knows about Colossae. Now, archaeological evidence shows us quite a bit about Colossae in B.C., 5th century, 4th century. Uh, there's a lot of indication that it was, it was a thriving city. It was a big city. Uh, economically, it was, uh, it was very well off. And, and it had a significant influence upon its culture, 5th and 4th century B.C. Things changed. So that by the time 1st century rolls around, Colossae is what commentators call, and I quote, an insignificant market town. How would you like to live in an insignificant market town? It was a little bit like New Sweden, Maine. Do you know where New Sweden, Maine is? Of course you don't. Why would you need to know where New Sweden, Maine is? I mean, the people in Aroostook County say it's not nowhere, but you can see it from there. (laughs) Colossi. Nobody really cared about Colossi in this first century. It was insignificant to the economy and the culture of its day. It's never mentioned in the book of Acts, which, of course, we get a lot of our New Testament history from. And we piece together Paul's missionary journeys and, and, and those of others. It gives us kind of a timeline of the growth and the development of, of the church uh, into, into that first century. There's no mention of Colossae in Acts. We don't know if Paul ever visited Colossae. It doesn't seem like he does from the evidence in, in Acts. We don't know anything about the church there. We don't know how it started. We don't know who was instrumental in starting it. Maybe a person named Epaphras, who is named only in Colossians and in the book of Philemon. We know nothing about Epaphras. Perhaps he was instrumental in starting the church there. 
obviously a friend of Paul's. But beyond that, we have no clue about the church in Colossae. One thing we're pretty sure of is that it wasn't a mega church and that they didn't broadcast on radio or TV. Now, that being true, think with me for just a minute about these two truths, okay? First truth. What we have in the letter of Colossians, the letter that was written to the believers, to the church in Colossae, is by far the most sweeping and complete Christology in the whole New Testament. Unbelievable. It is the most complete. We, we have Christology, of course, all through the New Testament. But in terms of just completeness and grandness, in terms of just exploding and exalting Christ to a position that, that we can't even fathom, there is no comparison in the New Testament to Colossians. This letter, second truth, as we just said, was sent to a small, out-of-the-way, backwater kind of a town, insignificant market town, according to the commentators. Most of the people of the day probably didn't care about it. Most of the people since then don't even know about it. Think about that. Think about that. The most colossal Christology in the New Testament sent to a place that nobody knows about. Is that cool? It is, isn't it? That, I think, is so cool. I mean, what, what's going on there? What's, what's the statement there? Do you see it? It's the same reason that my dear friends, Jerob and Amy McLean, are taking their five children, ages nine and under, to live in a hut in the village of Sawa in the jungle of Papua amongst, at max, 30 people. Because the truth about Jesus Christ is the most important truth in all the world. And there is no one who doesn't need to know the truth about Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter where they live. It doesn't matter how big their town is, how small their town is, how significant or insignificant. It doesn't matter how big or small they are or how insignificant or significant they are by the world's standards. The truth about Jesus Christ needs to find its way to every person on planet Earth. Thank you. Thank you. Yes! Hello, are we awake? Good. All right. And that's the goal. For our study, we want to know Jesus with theological correctness so that 
As God gives us opportunity, we can speak accurately about Jesus to those who knock on our doors, to those who ride up to us on their bicycles, to those who engage us in the grocery store, to those who we talk to across the fence in our yard. And it starts with knowing what God's Word teaches us about Jesus. So tell me again, what is it you're going to try to do at least once a week? How many chapters? Really short. Half time of the bra. Okay, good, good. Okay. Here's the thing. To say that Jesus is important, and, and who among us wouldn't say that Jesus is important, but to say that he is important is just not enough. It's not enough. We need, desperately we need, the grace and the teaching of the Spirit of God to take the truths that He has placed in this book and to put them deep into our hearts. Deep into our hearts. In that place where they begin to impact every thought and every move, so much so that the truth of who Jesus is just begins to spill out of our lives onto others as our lives intersect with theirs. Now, here's the thing. There's no need to convince them about who Jesus is. We are simply called to tell them about who Jesus is. Not only who Jesus is in theological accuracy, but who Jesus is in our lives and how what we know about Him has impacted the way that we live. It's not our job to convince other people. Our responsibility is to simply know with accuracy who Jesus is so that we can communicate to the best of our ability through word and action the absolute greatness and absolute importance of Jesus. What do you think? It's reasonable. I think, I think what I'm trying to say might be best summarized up in this story by Anne Graham Lotz in her book, Just Give Me Jesus. This is so cute. The story is told, she says, of a little boy who went to church. And he listened carefully to the pastor's sermon. When church was over, the little boy was puzzled. As he left with his parents, he saw the pastor across the parking lot, so he ran over. Pastor, can I ask you a question about your sermon this morning? So, of course, pastor readily assented. The little boy said, he said Jesus is a man. The pastor confirmed, that's right. Then the little boy said, but, but I'm just a little boy. pastor looked amused, but he kept a serious expression on his face. And he replied, that's right. Then the little boy said earnestly, but, but you said if I asked him to, Jesus would come live inside of me. Again, the pastor nodded. That's right. But pastor, the boy said, in an exasperation as though he was pointing something out to another child, if Jesus comes to live inside of me, he will be sticking out all over. To which the pastor firmly responded, that's exactly right. 
When Jesus Christ is enthroned as Lord, His power, His person, the presence that we've read about together this morning starts sticking out all over us. That's the point of Colossians. That's the goal of our study together. What are you going to do at least once a week? Yes, praise team. Why don't you come up and prepare to lead us as we respond. As the praise team prepares, they're going to they're going to sing a song for us that I think is just such a fitting expression of how life ought to be lived. It is lived in the presence of Jesus. It is lived with an awareness of Jesus. It is lived with the understanding that every experience of life from birth to death needs to be lived in the reality of who Jesus is. Brought to Him. Offered to Him. Lived for Him. Let me pray for us. Father, as we listen, we pray that Your Spirit would open in our hearts, perhaps in, in some new ways, a marvel at who Jesus is. We've just begun. Lord, we pray that Your Spirit would lead us and teach us in these weeks to come. Oh, for sure, many of us have studied Colossians a zillion times. Lord, it's precisely for that reason that we need your Spirit to open our hearts to the, to the greatness, to the grandeur, to the glory of Jesus, that it won't be just another study. Lord, we pray that you'll open our hearts, that we might be a people who, like Paul, are just over the top, smitten with wonder and praise of Jesus. And I pray also for those hearts in this place that perhaps have never given the position of priority and worship to Jesus Christ, I pray that this will be the time that you begin to, by your grace, draw them into your presence and into your glorious family. May we learn and grow together, all of us, wherever we are at. And may the end result be amazing worship and praise of Jesus for who He is and for what He has done. And we ask in His name. Amen.